Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to our Monday Scramble. I'm Colin. Uh, let me use, uh, use my um, familiar strategy of telling you what we're going to do, and then I'll tell you what we are doing. So in the second segment of today's show, I've been kind of fascinated. And there's a bleed between the second segment and the first segment, because I'll be talking about it here, too. But I've been fascinated, but not in a very healthy or approving way, of the understaffing in the Trump administration. I mean, there are, you know, I, last time I checked, uh, 550 uh, important confirmable jobs. There was like 60 of them that were even in the pipeline. Um, that was towards the end of March. But I mean, so there are all these really important jobs that are going begging, just be- not because the Senate is not confirming them, but because Trump just doesn't nominate anybody. So um, in the second segment, we're going to talk about the significance of that, particularly vis-a-vis global, global health and global health security. You know, we get all worried about missiles and, and terrorist attacks and stuff like that. And not that we shouldn't necessarily worry about that, but the leg- likelihood that thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of us could be wiped out by a pandemic that kind of cooks up over about 72 hours. The reality that Cameroon is basically in your driveway right now, epidemiologically speaking, means you really need to have like a lot of people around. A, planning for that. Uh, B, working on public health initiatives in those countries, as well as in our country, figuring out what you're going to do if something like this does happen. And I mean, I don't know, there's no permanent head of the CDC or USAID right now, just to give you an example. And it's a deeper problem than that. So that'll be the second segment. You will be terrified out of your mind. Uh, And then in the third segment, I'm not booking a guest today. I just want to be able to talk to you. I probably will talk a little bit about Bill O'Reilly, who I briefly knew during his time in Hartford. But I mean, that's not what I'm going to talk to you about, except about the time in which he induced a female colleague to an otherwise peace-loving female colleague to throw a chair at someone else. Uh, but that story is to come. Uh, all right. But here at the beginning, we want to talk about tyranny and specifically about what kinds of lessons history teaches us, us about tyranny, what one could do to resist tyranny or be at least a less uh, fertile breeding ground for tyranny. Uh, here to do all of that uh, is Timothy Snyder, professor of history at Yale University and the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Um, this is a uh, as we will probably say several times. It's um, a a short but very pithy uh, and pertinent uh, book that you can buy. I would say buy eight of them. They're they're $8, so you buy eight of them. You probably get some kind of discount from somebody. And then you could just give them out to people. I don't think they make a good stocking stuffer. You know, you pull it out of the stocking, it says, on tyranny. That might be a little bit upsetting for people. But I mean, uh, in all uh, party favors, Absolutely. At the end of your dinner party, hand them out. So before we let Timothy Snyder speak, which he's now been waiting to do for several minutes, Bissy Kaplan and I put together a, a supercut today of what President Trump thinks about other dictators. What does he think about Kim Jong-un and Putin and al-Sisi in Egypt and even Saddam Hussein back in the good old days? Well, here's what he thinks. 
I mean, it also as a person that kills journalists, political al I mean, right. political opponents, yeah. and uh, invades countries, and invades countries. Obviously, uh, that uh, it would be a concern, would it not? He's running his country, and at least he's a leader. You know, unlike what we have in this country. You look at North Korea. This guy, this I mean, he's like a maniac, and you got to give him credit. He goes in, he takes over, and he's the boss. He wiped out the uncle. He wiped out this one, that one. I mean, this guy doesn't play games. I just want to let everybody know, in case there was any doubt, that we are very much behind President al-Sisi. He's done a fantastic job in a very Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, right? But you know what he did well? He killed terrorists. He did that so good, they didn't read him the rights. They didn't talk. They were a terrorist. It was over. All right. So, I mean, Timothy Snyder, you know, our mothers always said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Uh, Donald Trump in that cut, we hear him saying approving even laudatory things uh, about uh, Vladimir Putin. Even Kim Jong-un, then um, al-Sisi from Egypt, and at the end, Saddam Hussein. Um, just because you think other tyrants are great doesn't mean you're a tyrant. But I would assume it's maybe a reason to have a checkup. I think it does mean you're a tyrant, actually, or at least an aspiring tyrant. It gives you a sense of what Mr. Trump thinks is normal. We, we don't have a record of Mr. Trump praising other kinds of people. We only have a record of Mr. Trump praising tyrants. We don't have a record of Mr. Trump applauding the rule of law and democratic procedures. We only have a record of Mr. Trump talking about people who take murderous and violent shortcuts. So this is our guide to imagining what's in his mind. It doesn't mean that he will succeed. But actually, I do think it, it with a lot of other things like his habit of calling journalists enemies of the people or um, his, his habit of referring to judges as so-called judges. These give you a sense of, of the world he would like to see. It's not a world that's familiar unless you're looking, used to looking at tyranny as in history or beyond the United States. So one of the things that we know that tyrants typically do, if they possibly can, and it certainly enables their rise, and you uh, cover this with a, an excerpt or a book-related piece in, in Slate uh, over the weekend, uh, is, I mean, they rarely say, hey, I want to be a tyrant, so uh, everybody follow in line. They usually are offering you something or responding to something. I think you quote James Madison uh, saying that tyranny arises, quote, on some favorable emergency. So what, what did he mean by a favorable emergency? Yeah. So you're, first of all, you're absolutely right in general. The way the pattern usually works is they first say, hey, I want to be a tyrant. And then there's a second phase where it's, hey, I'm running for office, so let me just soften my message a little bit. And then there's the third phase where things actually happen. The, the lesson the book you're referring to towards the end of the book is is what is where I talk about a Reichstag fire. A Reichstag fire was the event on the 27th of February 1933, where someone set the German parliament on fire and Hitler who had just come to office legally, having won, having won an election, he was asked to form a government. He used that opportunity to suspend the rule of law, to get rid of due process, and to take away the normal rights of German citizens. So what tyrants wait for is the kind of thing which will make us so afraid, so surprised, so disoriented, that we'll give up on the rights that we're used to having for what seems like a moment, but which turns out to be forever. Right. And you can either wait for it or you can make it happen yourself. Um, and we don't have to look very far, at least chronologically, to see a pretty good example of this recently. You hear, you heard in those cuts, uh, Donald Trump praising al-Sisi from Egypt. Um, as a result of the church bombings, al-Sisi has declared a three-month state of emergency. Uh, it's really, as the New York Times put it out, not really clear what extra powers he requires, considering the fact that he already is a tyrant. He pretty much can do whatever he wants to do. He has imprisoned or exiled thousands 
of political opponents, uh, oversees a parliament totally dominated by his supporters. And in his most recent speech, speaking of enemies of the people, he said that the news media coverage of the attacks uh, could be restricted. He said the media discourse has to be responsible. It's not acceptable to have the incident aired repeatedly on television stations all day. So if you want a modern Reichstag fire, you've kind of got one in Egypt, right? You, you have them all over the place. The, 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 the attempted coup d'etat in Turkey, uh, the, the explosion in Moscow apartment buildings in, in 1999. This is basically a blueprint from 1933 of which all modern tyrants are aware. And, you know, there are a couple of stages. The first is we're softened up by leaders who talk about terrorism and extremism. Terrorism, of course, is a real problem. Um, extremism is just a name that aspiring tyrants use for their future opponents. We get used to that language and then something happens. And perhaps, as you say, it's real. Perhaps it's provoked. Perhaps it's even faked. But the crucial thing is that in the moment, we just don't know. And it's going to be in the moment we'll, where we'll be asked to give up our freedom. Let me let me just um, throw up a counter argument here just for the sake of uh, for the sake of argument. So, you know, we look at things like this, but but it's also true that perfectly legitimate law-abiding leaders are occasionally demonized this way, and we don't have to look very far. I mean, during uh, President o o Obama's eight years, there were all kinds of people on the right saying that he had some kind of master plan to roll up the whole country and put everybody in FEMA trailers and, and that he was a tyrant and he was and, and, and there were any number of things that were cited by the Alex Jones fringe, which turns out to be not quite as fringy as that we, we thought. I mean, even things like Sandy Hook right here in Connecticut, that was a false flag to take your guns away. I mean, the arguments that you can legitimately use against a tyrant are often used against legitimate rulers. So how, how do we make those kinds of discernments? This is where history actually comes in handy. I, I think one of the big mistakes we made after 1989 and the end of communism was to declare that history was over. And therefore, we forgot about the details. We forgot about the concepts, whether it was history in Europe or in the United States. The lessons of the founders were exactly the opposite. The founders were, uh, they were extremely attentive to the possibility of a tyranny in the United States. They were not concerned with foreigners bringing it to us. They were concerned with our bringing it to ourselves. The reason they were concerned with that was that they looked at the examples of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which is w where it happened. We now have 200 years more of examples of democratic republics failing. We can see what the dynamics of that are, and that's the subject of the book. It gives you examples of how regimes of both the far right and the far left were able to take over in more or less democratic conditions. So the way to check all of this is to ask, hmm, is the person in question doing things which ring a bell? So for example, Mr. Trump at his rallies did use the exact same bag of tricks that fascist leaders used in the 1920s and 1930s. Mr. Bannon does invite us back to the 1930s and describes them as exciting. So if you have history, you actually have a way to check on this and it doesn't become a matter of who has the most feverish imagination. The uh, one of the things that you emphasize in the book that I think is really um, pertinent um, is that an emphasis on sort of institutions, professional classes, professional standards, both inside and outside of government. So in other words, if they're lawyers and lawyers have to follow some kind of code that's self-generated, then it's harder to get lawyers to do horrible things, which they did do uh, under the uh, arc of the Third Reich. Um, you know, if you've got uh, a government class with its own understanding of how things work, um, it, 
it's maybe a little bit easier to, to tap the brakes if doctors have rules that you don't do certain kinds of experiments on unwilling or don't do any experiments on, on unwilling participants. You get uh, fewer Mengele's out in the world. It does seem right now that there has been an attack on institutions. Judges who rule the quote unquote wrong way are called so-called judges. And, and this whole thing of not staffing the government means that when you want to do a missile strike on Syria, instead of having to go through this series of baffles, you know, of deputies uh, in, in state and defense, whose job it is in these situations to ask sort of what could go wrong questions. What's the downside of this? Those, it's not that he has to override those people. Those people aren't there. He just didn't fill the jobs, which, uh, which to me, um, when I was reading your book, I thought, oh, well, that's one way to solve this. Just don't have those people exist. I think, I mean, in the Trump administration, there are a couple of things going on. There's a standard Republican suspicion of the government, uh, the idea that the government should be as small as possible. And in addition to that, you have the Bannon-style disruption, which says it's good if things are chaotic, it's good if things don't work. And on that logic, you win both ways. If what happens is what you want to have happen, then you win. And if all you end up doing is making a big mess, as is likely this time too, you can also say that's a win since your job is just to create disruption and chaos. This logic can go on for a really long time. And one of the consequences of it is that if people begin to lose trust in government as such, then they think, aha, what we really need is something simpler, something cleaner. The leader needs to have more authority and so on and so forth. That's what it's really all about. The person who wants to be the leader, which is a fascist word, by the way, the Führer, the um, the person who wants to be the leader tries to create mistrust in all of the institutions between the leader and the average citizen to discredit law, discredit bureaucracy, say these things aren't really relevant. I'm not saying this is going to work out for them very well, but I think that's the basic idea. Um, you write in the book a lot about language. We just got through having a, a forum about language last week, which I'm hoping we can turn into a radio show ultimately. And we were talking a lot about it, too, you know, in terms of Orwell's politics in the English language. And th there's sort of two ways that language get gets used uh, to to maybe aid and abet tyrants. One of them is, I think, a way that Trump doesn't use it. And uh, But maybe you'll correct me on this. You know, Orwell talks about these kind of... Um, uh, stale and obfuscatory uh, phrases. He says, you know, anytime anybody uses them, you can tell they're in the process of doing something abominable. Um, and like a more modern example of this um, that Orwell would totally recognize is collateral damage, right? Collateral damage re really refers to the killing of civilians and, of course, the military actions, but it sounds so much better uh, or, or at least less, you know, less, less like carnage, if you call it collateral damage. I don't see Trump doing that so much. He kind of does the other thing. Right. He uses kind of visceral, high octane, blunt language, which he repeats over and over again. Yeah. If you reread 1984, which happily lots of Americans are doing, it's been a bestseller for months now. There are a whole lot of linguistic strategies. One of them would be the three minute hate. I think Trump is pretty close to that. The idea that you just mindlessly vilify someone for a short period of time. And it does really feel good while you're doing it, even if it's not consistent with anything else you're doing. But if you if you watch or even read the transcripts of the Trump rallies, you see that there's an awful lot of that going on, just picking someone and, and just riling up the crowd, making the crowd really energetic. That's a, that's a strategy. Another Orwellian point from 1984 is the idea of doublethink, where you just contradict yourself so much that 
people slowly come to realize that it's not about listening to what you say. It's the ability to adjust to whatever it is you are saying. And that's a completely different style of politics. That's authoritarianism. In a democracy, we do have to – we hold leaders to the standards of the real world and we call them on it when they lie or make mistakes. If we get into the habit of thinking that it's not reality that matters, it's just our ability to adjust to whatever the leader says reality is – then we're no longer in a democratic situation. And he certainly does that. I mean, anyone who actually tried to, anyone besides Sean Spicer, who's paid for it, right, who tried to go along with what the president says day to day would be destroying his own mind. <laughs> the um, Yeah, actually, Orwell in 1984, I went back and, uh, and spent some time with that to get ready for this language thing. And one of the qualities of Newspeak is an actual contraction of language, too, the, the notion of really using fewer words. And that is something that, that I think Trump does very effectively. As you point out in the book, he uses terms almost like Homeric epithets. So it's crooked Hillary and lion Ted Cruz and the failing New York Times. Um, and it's also, the, obviously, as you say, the repetition of this, correct? Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking of that too. He, he 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 has a limited vocabulary, but I think he consciously limits his own vocabulary trying to create this kind of incantatory mechanism where we get these phrases in our minds like crooked Hillary or lion Ted and then we can't get them out again, which by the way is a fascist strategy of the 1930s, which observers in the 1930s noticed. And uh, the, the, the thing which is related to this, which is really important, is that we have to, however we do it, by reading books, by talking to people in other countries, we have to resist a tendency, even in jest, to repeat these phrases. We have to make sure that we have our own way of talking about what we think, that we have our own richer vocabulary, that we finish our own sentences. Because if we can't do that linguistically, we also can't do it mentally. And if we can't do it mentally, we can't do it politically. So when I see my friends using Trumpian language to make fun of him, I think, oh, no, this is not a win for them. This is, this is a way that they're actually falling under the spell. We're talking to Timothy Snyder, a professor of history at Yale. His book is On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. So one of your lessons is establish a private life. Uh, and he says, you say scrub your computer of malware on a regular basis. Remember that email is skywriting. Consider using alternative forms uh, of the Internet. Now, uh, fairly recently, Trump uh, signed a legislation killing privacy rules that would have required Internet service providers to get your explicit consent before they share or sell your web browsing history and other sensitive information. These were rules that had been approved in the final months of the Obama administration but hadn't taken effect. Now they never will. I mean, it, like he's helping write your book for you. Yeah, I, I haven't had the time to do this because the news has come so fast and thick, but I, I think I should just be sending out tweets or whatever, tagging news items saying, yeah, this is less than number X in the book. Because everything I wrote in the book, I, I, I wrote in November. And basically, Trump has just come along and drawn the illustrations for me. And that, that's a really good one. We could already see in 2016 how risky and dangerous it was for us to get used to the idea that governments, whether they're foreign or domestic, corporations, whether foreign or domestic, can get into our emails or our browsers history and then dump it. Because if that can happen, it means we have to think about the present all the time. And if we have to think about the present, we have to think about everything we do in terms of how it's going to look five years later on someone else's computer screen, then we're just not free anymore. And that's that's a pretty big realization that we're all blackmailable by anybody all the time. You know, we wouldn't invite uh, cameramen to come into our showers. And, and, and having all of our data be sold to whatever Chinese company at the bidding of whoever wants to do it is actually much more invasive than that. And this is something we really have to get our minds around and try to fix. 
So one of the things you do in this book, and let me just emphasize again, uh, this book on tyranny, uh, I don't usually say this on the air, but it costs uh, $8, which is not that much for a book. And it's small. You can uh, carry it as a concealed book. But more than that, uh, you if you like it, you can buy a whole bunch of them and give them out to other people at a fairly limited expense. And one of the things that this book emphasizes, cause, because a lot of people listen to a conversation like the one you and I are having right now, and they go, well... I'm just some schmo. I live in Deep River. What, what am I going to do? You know. Well, you actually have some things that that anybody can do. You don't have to be a pundit or a senator. Maybe mention one or two of those. Yeah, thank you for that. Because the the whole point of the book is that you don't have to despair. You know, the the first move the book makes is to say, yes, we are at a critical turning point in history, and if you don't grasp that, then you just haven't grasped the situation. So the first the first part of the book is meant to brace you. But the optimistic side is we can all do a little something, and if we all do a little something, or if millions of us do a little something, that will probably make a difference. So some of the things are hard but sound easy, like lesson number one, don't obey in advance, which means Make up your own mind about what's important. Don't drift along with everyone else. That's one that sounds easy, but is in fact hard. You know, number two, we already talked about support institutions. That can mean something as simple as joining a non-governmental organization, giving a few dollars to an NGO. Um, number ten, believe in truth. I mean, that sounds like a challenge, but a little thing that you can do is that you can pay for your newspaper subscriptions. If everybody who read newspapers paid for the subscriptions, we would be subsidizing the investigations, which are, by the way, the only way that we know anything about the Trump administration thus far is thanks to the investigative journalists. So the, the, the book is full of all these things which are relatively easy, and we can still do those things. Towards the end of the book, we have the things which are much harder, but I'm hopeful we won't have to get to that stage. Yeah. I did, I, by the way, I followed all the instructions in your book. I, I got a digital subscription to the Washington Post, even though I am a journalist. Uh, I joined uh, the National Resources Defense Council and the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Mexican-American right. Defense Legal, Legal Defense fun. And one thing that happens when you do that, you get like I'll get all this stuff in the mail. Like, I don't know, Morris Dees just sent me a book the other day. Um, so it's nice. you know. <laughs> well, no, in, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, one of the one of the little bits of advice, which is really easy is, is and related to this is practice corporeal politics, which is maybe a too fancy way of saying join organizations or take part in activities which get you out of your basement and out in front of your out from yep. in front of your computer and out with other people, because then nice things happen all the time. I mean, just since I've written this book, it means that I get invited to do things. I get to talk to people. And there are all kinds of fantastically interesting and great Americans out there who are doing interesting things who you would never come into contact with if you just sit and try to do everything by, by, by way of Facebook. I, I've had that exact same experience, too. Um, Tim, Timothy Snyder, we have to stop here just because uh, we're using the Yale Studios, and I think somebody else is coming in, and they can be quite strict about that. So Timothy Snyder, professor of history at Yale University, the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, Buy lots of them and just hand them out to random people on the street. Actually, maybe that's not a good idea. You don't really know what people are going to do. But thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Colin. My pleasure. And we'll take a little break. Am I still on there? Yeah. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. This was like the, believe it or not, the tyranny segment. That was the one that's not going to scare you. Now we're going to do the one that's really going to scare the hell out of you. You cheat with the French. Now I'm fighting with France and with Spain. I'm so blue I thought that we made an arrangement when you went away You were mine to subdue Well, even despite our estrangement 
I've got a small query for you. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue? So let me just sort of prepare you for this. Not, not, not so much that you actually turn off the radio. That wouldn't be a good idea. But, I, you know, right after uh, Donald Trump was elected, we did um, a segment here on the Monday Scramble about how the nuclear football works and how actually relatively unfettered the president's power to launch nuclear warheads uh, is. And it, like people didn't come out from under their blankets for like six days. I mean, we, we got a lot of emails saying <laughs> that was really, really scary. This is going to be almost that scary. Uh, I'm, I wish it were not. I wish it were otherwise. But this is, this is a subject that probably should terrify you somewhat. Uh, we're going to be talking basically about global health security and, you know, the possibility that a pandemic, uh, if it were to arise, could move very, very fast. I mean, Cameroon and Mali are basically in your driveway right now, epidemiologically speaking. It doesn't take very long for things to move around the planet. So uh, joining us now is uh, Lena Sun. Uh, First of all, am I saying your name correctly? Yes. Okay. So Lena Sun, who reports on health for The Washington Post, uh, she's been uh, writing about this and specifically about, uh, and, and it refers back to what I was talking to Timothy Snyder about, the consequences of President Trump's essentially broken staff process for this particularly terrifying uh, area. So Lena Sun, you write, after 11 weeks in office, the Trump administration has filled few of the senior positions critical to responding to an outbreak. There is no permanent director at the CDC or at the U.S. agency. For International Development at the Department of Health and Human Services, no one has been named to fill sub-cabinet posts for health, global affairs, uh, or preparedness and response. Um, and you go on to talk about how lines of responsibility are also somewhat murky and muddy uh, right now. Now, this isn't that unusual. I mean, many, many, many important staffing positions are not being filled by the Trump administration. What makes this a slightly jumpier issue is the fact that, you know, what, we're about 36 hours away at any given moment from something migrating from somewhere else to here, something that could be really, really damaging to us. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, when we talk about global health security, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ability of a germ to travel from a rural village somewhere in Africa or the Middle East and spread very quickly to an urban area and get to the United States in under 36 hours. So um, when you talk to people who follow this work, who do this work and either provide vaccines or do other kind of work on the ground, you know, they might be having uh, dinner in Nairobi, breakfast in London, and lunch in New York. So plane travel these days. And also most of the diseases, um, these, these new viruses that are popping up, jump from animals to humans. And um, because humans are now living in closer proximity to animals because of urbanization and climate change and lots of other reasons, there's much greater likelihood for, um, for more outbreaks and also for the size and the scale and different ways um, these uh, diseases are transmitted. So there's a lot of different theaters on, on which... Uh, our, our caution and and readiness has to proceed. Uh, maybe we can start with the international theater. Uh, it's not enough 
uh, America first rhetoric, uh, notwithstanding, it's not enough just to worry about American soil. You also have to kind of worry about how well other countries are doing when they get measles outbreaks. Are they ready? Are they uh, vaccinating quickly? And this is uh, an area where, as you report, the U.S. has played a role in the past, getting other countries, especially so-called third world countries, ready for stuff. Right. Because, you know, the best way to stop a disease from coming to our shores is to stop the disease at its source, right? It's faster, it's cheaper, it's it's the best thing to do. And most of these, um, the areas of the world, the countries at the greatest risk with the least capability of stopping epidemics are, uh, for example, look at Ebola in West Africa um, uh, and Zika started and then hopped around the globe and it and it really was able to get a beachhead in Brazil. So the idea that you could somehow build a wall or put up a, you know, a travel ban of, of, of people coming through, which is what uh, Trump was tweeting during the Ebola outbreaks, is just not scientifically uh, sound. That's just not how disease spreads. Right. So on the one hand, you want um, other countries to be good at public health and, and epidemiology. You also want to be good about it here. And as you report, I mean, one of the other things that can happen is um, a, a flu strain that's around already right now might mutate into a far more dangerous creature. Maybe you could say a little bit more than that. Right, right. So the flu strain that everybody has been worrying about is this H7N9 flu strain um, that has uh, taken hold in that this season in China was the worst on record ever. And uh, that flu strain kills up to 40% of the people with confirmed infections. So among emerging infectious disease threats, a global flu pandemic is everyone's worst nightmare because some outbreaks can be highly lethal but not spread that easily. And some outbreaks can be very contagious but not that lethal. The bad thing, the fear about pandemic flu is that it would both be highly lethal and highly contagious. So, um, for example, um, this particular strain, H7N9, of all like 13 different kinds of um, emerging influenza viruses, this one is the one that poses the greatest risk of a pandemic. Um, if it evolves to spread easily from humans to humans, because it's the type of bird flu that is has the best ability to cross the species barrier and infect both poultry and humans. It was in along the provinces in eastern China um, uh, and spreading, and now it has spilled over into Tibet, which is on the far other side of the country. So that's why everybody always worries about the flu, uh, pandemic flu. And just to put that in perspective, in 1918, a very virulent influenza pandemic killed an estimated 50 million people. That was at the time uh, when the world's population was, I think, only two-sevenths of what it is now. And apparently that flu virus went around the world four times. Uh, that was back in the day when we didn't have such great travel. 
Right. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we can move stuff around so much faster. And the other thing I think, you know, people are legitimately or should be legitimately concerned right now, this isn't something we have to wait for. So-called MDROs, infections that are resistant to multiple drugs, they're here already. Exactly. Uh, and, and, I mean, it wouldn't take – I mean, well, they are. They're here already. They're also – they're already uh, dangerous. They're already something that we have to deal with. Um, I assume, once again, this is something where you want to have some kind of federal strategy about this. Right. And the other thing is, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, which is the wrong, wrong-headed wrong kind of thinking, is um, by the time it, an outbreak turns into an epidemic, you, you have lost so much time. So that what you need to do is to have a system that's already working so that you can scale it up, right, because that's much faster. Um, in countries, uh, in some of the countries where um, – this effort to increase their capacity to track and monitor, like in Cameroon and in Mali, um, they're helping these countries figure out ways to find the outbreaks in the first place and, and you know, monitor it and, you know, nail it and crush it in its place before it can spread elsewhere. During Ebola, there was a big fear when there was one case that went to um, Nigeria. And there was already teams of people working on eradicating polio in that country. And those polio workers were then um, redirected to deal with Ebola, and they managed to keep it from spreading. Because if it had spread out of Nigeria, then that would have been it. Um, And so they were able to nip it, that one case that went over. But this ability to detect it early on, you need to have trained people, you need to know... um, have a surveillance system where you can find out when something is first happening. That is the most critical thing. So we know that President Obama put a lot of money and leadership into this stuff and had a global uh, health initiative in 2014. Do we know anything about what the Trump administration's policies or even vague feelings are about the whole subject you and I are talking about right now? Well, not really, because I actually tried to get somebody at the National Security Council to talk about this on the record, and I couldn't. So that gives you a sense of, you know, if they can't talk about it on the record, that means the bosses haven't figured out what they want to say. Um, uh, Bill Gates, who has um, talked about this quite a bit, and his the Gates Foundation has spent billions of dollars in this area, met with uh, Trump last month, and after the meeting, Sean Spicer uh, put out something during the daily briefing in which they said that they supported the efforts to stop outbreaks um, very generally. And um, Trump commended Bill Gates for his work. But that was it. And um, this initiative that began under the Obama administration in 2014, the basic idea is get as many countries together as possible to agree to help those who are least able to... um, do this kind of stuff, which is find disease and uh, identify them and track them and prevent them, give them, help them, give them resources, and then have everybody have a public report card so you could see exactly what where your weak spots are and also it's to help hold those governments accountable. So more than 30 countries have done that report card thing, and um, a progress has also been made in a lot of specific places in helping individual countries um, do that kind of work. But President Obama also raised this issue in his meetings with foreign leaders. And, you know, when you have the president or high-level people bring this up, it has a 
makes a lot of difference. And as a result, Nordic countries agreed to help 10 countries do assessments. I think Pakistan and India, after meeting with the president, also agreed to do the report card. This requires political will. It is not a health issue. It is a national security issue that affects everything across all sectors of government, all sectors of life. Because imagine if a pandemic hit, um, it would just ripple through um, and it, it, it would affect every single aspect of your life. So uh, what we uh, this sort of the his history may not repeat itself, but the present kind of does. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking uh, with a reporter from The New York Times uh, in Germany who had covered uh, the first meeting of G20 finance ministers that included um, Mr. Mnuchin, the new secretary of the Treasury, and how just dropping sort of Trumpism into the midst of a bunch of established thinking about international finance and trade uh, was a little bit of a shock to the system. This is going to happen all over again in Germany again in May uh, when G20 health ministers are, are all gathering, not even really clear exactly uh, who we would send to this, uh, but uh, do we know kind of what's on the agenda or what either needs to be talked about or could be talked about? Well, so G20 is normally focused on finance and economics, and then they have a lot of other work groups that go around it. So this year, for the first time, they're convening a meeting just of the health ministers, and one of the items on the agenda is pandemic. They're going to do a pandemic simulation. And it's clearly because leaders around the world realize this is a really big deal. And um, they're hosting this summit in Berlin. It's in May. It Generally, we're expecting that the HHS Secretary, Tom Price, would represent the United States and bring um, a lot of the professional folks. But I wasn't able to get anybody from HHS to confirm that for me when I tried to find out um, last week. Also, another big event in May is the election for the new director general of the World Health Organization. And the WHO, as you know and your readers, listeners know, um, they play a huge role in any kind of um, outbreak, uh, epidemic, and this will be a chance to, for whoever represents the United States to get to know uh, his or her global partners in, in this very critical area. We're talking to uh, Lena's son, uh, reports on health for the Washington Post. Boy, you're having a hard time getting anybody to go on the record. Have you actually um, asked Sean Spicer, who answers questions on behalf of President Trump, about this? Well, I, I've usually been going to the NSC because the NSC um, in the previous administration was the lead agency. That's where all the coordination took place, for example, during Ebola, this alphabet soup of agencies. Um, the U.S. response was, you know, included not just the CDC and USAID, but um, every every agency you can think of in the government to coordinate the response. And you need to have that authority to convene and to mobilize resources uh, to get things done. And um, uh, I was hoping, I was trying to determine whether the NSC is going to be that same, play that same leadership role in this administration, and it's it's not clear. All right. Well, uh, we are going to uh, all just take a deep breath and then take our vitamins and cross our fingers and hope for the best. But Lena Sun, uh, thanks for your reporting on this. I hope it reaches the appropriate ears or eyes. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. I'm going to invite you to call in about things if they are uh, pressing for you. Uh, otherwise, I'll be talking about Bill O'Reilly, uh, maybe also a little point about word usage. Our number, 860 860- Two seven five seven two six six. That's eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. You can also tweet at us at our account 
at WNPR Colin. We again have a day without Kion Wolf. Oh, I, first of all, I'll, let me give out the number. If anybody wants to call in about anything, 860, that's a dangerous thing to say, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Again, a day without Kion Wolf, uh, so it falls to me to thank various people. Betsy Kaplan uh, whipped this show into line, as she always does on Mondays, and it's not easy to do, but she makes it happen. Uh, Jonathan McNichol is on the board today because, in fact, Kion Wolf, as I said, is not here. Answering phones is our intern, Ali O'Reilly. I'm giving her new uh, last names every time I introduce her now until somebody comes back and stops me. They also have to begin with O, however. Uh, and uh, what else? Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Claire Danes. Uh, tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk about mind control and brainwashing. Um, and you're not going to realize we talked about it afterwards um, because we'll be able to do that. Uh, also, tomorrow is one of the days that where we are doing uh, radio for the deaf, as we call it. It's actually a, um, a, a broadcast yeah, I guess I would call it a broadcast. We're using Facebook Live, basically, on our site, the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, uh, to uh, stream interpreted uh, language from in American Sign Language. I'm making that sound more complicated than it is. Anyway, everything that we say on the air tomorrow will be interpreted by uh, American Sign Language interpreters on a, a special uh, Facebook Live video on the Colin McEnroe Show page. So if you know anybody out there in the, for the most part, rather unreached uh, for radio deaf audience, um, please tell them about this because we'd love to have them join us live or later, either one. All right, so um, if you want to call in about anything, the phone lines are, as they say, open, 860. They're always actually open. It's just, you know, 860. <laughs> we have closed phone lines the rest of the time. 860-275-7266. Allie will answer your phone call. So um, let me quickly um, say that uh, years ago, Bill O'Reilly worked in this market. He and Don Lark were hired at the same time as co-male answer male anchors on WFSB. And he was a young guy out of, I think he'd been at Texas. I think one of them came from Detroit and one of them came from Texas. I think O'Reilly came from Dallas, uh, uh, where he'd been working at that station there. And he was, even then, the person that he kind of is now, um, in, in two cents. <laughs> One of them was, and I have never had anyone do this before I have, or since. So I was at that point a newspaper writer. That's what I was. I was a newspaper writer. Um, and newspaper writers, as we know, for the most part, don't make very much money. I was a young newspaper writer. I made very little money. Um, this was sort of in the beginning of the time when local news anchors were starting to get paid a lot of money uh, because it was just it was real. It was at that time. This was an especially profitable thing for uh, local TV stations. So um, I, I was I sort of had as a um, minor beat uh, in my assignment life, sort of keeping an eye on local television. And so I was getting to know these guys. And on one occasion, I was talking to O'Reilly. I was standing. He was sitting. I was in the newsroom of WFSB. And there had already been quite a bit of reporting about how much money these guys were getting to, to come here. And he, in the course of talking to me, without commenting on it, reached into his pocket and pulled out a money clip thick with currency and began counting, you know, just sort of close, slowly, bill by bill, riffing through his money as we were having this conversation. I mean, I, t <laughs> I mean, this is such a bald attempt uh, at some kind of financial intimidation tactic. I, it was just it was comical. Um, and the other quick story I have to tell from that time was that I heard 
that a, another anchor, a female anchor at the station named Adrian Barnes, had thrown a chair at him because he was so obnoxious. <laughs> so, so I called up Adrian Barnes and I said, um, is it true that you threw a chair at Bill O'Reilly? And um, there was a little bit of a silence. And she said, ask me that, repeat that question. I said, is it true that you threw a chair at Bill O'Reilly? And she said, no, that is not true. That's untrue. Um, now, years later, Adrienne told me that the problem was the way I asked the question, that Bill O'Reilly, because he was so obnoxious and nothing was being done about it, caused her to lose her temper and throw a chair at somebody else. Um, I think it was a producer named, it was Win Wynn Edwards, maybe? Was there a Win Edwards? Anyway, she threw a chair at somebody else because of O'Reilly. I just had asked the question. If I'd asked the question, like, did Bill O'Reilly induce you to throw a chair? She would have had to answer me differently. Anyway, um, you know, obviously, uh, O'Reilly has turned into kind of a story now because of the sexual harassment uh, settlements. I mean, there are now apparently five different settlements with uh, women uh, who uh, sued Fox, uh, brought some kind of actions against Fox News over O'Reilly's um, alleged sexual harassments. And, you know, Jim Rutenberg has a great piece in The Times today talking about O'Reilly's record as a moralist, that, you know, if you look back at the kinds of things he has editorialized about, not just on his TV show, but he's written these books, you know, talking about how difficult it is for people to control themselves, but how they must, they must control themselves, particularly in the area of sex, as Rutenberg documents in The Times today. Um, O'Reilly's brought this up a lot, uh, you know, in a way that would make you think that he was some kind of model of sexual continence. Uh, I go back to something that one of my, I have like, like, I, I have like seven ideas, no more than seven ideas that I rely on as kind of insights. Uh, and someday I'll just do a show where I name all of them. But one of them is one that I actually got from Thomas More, who's one of my heroes anyway, because I was asking him about this very phenomenon. Why is it when there are, the, when there are sexual moralists, whether it's Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart uh, or Dr. Laura or any of the, or, you know, we can add O'Reilly to the list, but any, these people who go on and on about this stuff, that you can pretty much start an egg timer for when they get caught or get accused or something like that. And Moore said, it's because they've already acknowledged the power this material has over them. You know, by becoming self-appointed and very much attention-getting sexual censors, they've already said, this is a very powerful area of life for me. I always thought that was a very uh, a brilliant insight. Um, anyway, I just very quickly want to say, you know, I mean, among the people who have defended uh, Bill O'Reilly is, I guess, not surprisingly, President Trump, who basically uh, said that he thinks O'Reilly's a good man and that he'll get through this. And, of course, President Trump, as we know from actual, you know, listenable audio in the, the famous Billy Bush Access Hollywood bus incident, President Trump takes a rather relaxed view of this whole subject anyway, even thinks it's maybe something you should go out and one should go out and do this and or at least engage in locker room talk, as he said, about going out and doing this. But, you know, I mean, what kind of message does that send to women in America who are in situations where they are being sexually harassed? Um, at the end of Rutenberg's piece today, he he quotes a woman. He doesn't want to give her real name. She's a friend of his, and her name is Tracy, uh, and she works in the fashion industry, uh, and she's a Trump voter, and she's a Republican. And he contacts her to see what she's making of all this. And she says, well, you know, he's an easy target. Uh, so I'm, I trust him. I believe in him. I know he's an easy target for stuff like that. And I was reading that. <laughs> what does that mean? 
he's an easy target. Is he an easy like President Obama, for example, was not an easy target for allegations of this kind because he didn't do things like that. And nor was there anything about his manner that suggested that he would ever do things like that. So he was the president of the United States. I guess that makes him a pretty visible person, but he wasn't an easy target for things like that. You're an easy target for things like that if, in fact, you've done them. Um, I mean, not that everybody who is ever accused of anything has done that thing. I'm not going down that road. So, But, but uh, uh, you know, he here, in this instance, you have the behavior of Fox, which I'm assuming they don't like handing out millions of dollars, which they've apparently had to do in these settlements. They've now, I mean, and after treating, oddly enough, Roger Ailes more strictly than they have treated O'Reilly, they've now basically turned this investigation over to the same law firm that investigated the allegations about Ailes. Um, but I just... <laughs> <laughs> the the notion anyway that he is going to stay on the air moralizing about stuff, which has been very much his tendency, is one. It's sort of hard to see how that's ultimately very sustainable. And of course, as we know, one thing that has happened, at least temporarily, is that the marketplace has rebelled. That he's lost he's lost sponsors by the wagon load. On the other hand, we've seen this happen before. After the Sandra Fluke incident, Rush Limbaugh lost um, advertisers by the wagon load. I don't know if you've noticed, but Rush Limbaugh hasn't really gone anywhere. So, okay, now I said I would take your calls, and people have called in, and now there's no time. So what we have to do, we have to do like a show. Oh, do we have time? Do I have time to take Jerry? All right. Jerry. Jerry, you have to go very, very fast. You have to promise. Hi. Hi. Really short. Yeah. And probably you can't answer it, but maybe somebody will talk about it. The use of the word so to begin an answer to the question, whatever the question is. All right. So there we go. Um, <laughs> I'm done. I'll take the answer off the air. Right. Creeping so-ism is something that I think did begin heavily on public radio. I initially blamed Ira Glass for it, but it turns out I don't think it is Ira's fault. It is something that happens. The only thing that I can say about that is that we did a really interesting forum last week, uh, a live forum, I mean, a forum with a live audience on language with just great guests. And, and we are hoping to transform that into a radio show that might even run next week. Uh, and uh, we did not talk about creeping soism, but we talked about that kind of thing. Also, we talked about the way in which language, is, language does get warped for political ends, too. So... There it is. I, well, you, you can't ban the word so anyway. There are certain there are legitimate uses. But I know exactly what you're saying, that you ask somebody a question and they begin with so. I think it is just a, it's almost a, a replacing a disfluency. Instead of saying uh <laughs> or um, you say so because that sounds so much smarter than uh or um. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to everybody who helped. We're going to stop now. We're going to start back up tomorrow with mind control and brainwashing. You will listen to this show. You will listen to our show tomorrow and every day.